Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Regina, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Emerging Treatments for Metastatic Melanoma. And today's program is being conducted in conjunction and partnership with the Melanoma Research Foundation. And you're going to hear much more about them as the program proceeds. Um, this is part two of Living with Advanced Skin Cancer and Melanoma. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers-Squibb and a grant from Genentech. I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have over 200 participants on the call today. So there are a lot of you on the call today. And you come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Egypt, Kenya, Malawi, Mauritius, Nepal, Nigeria, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. And I say credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us to learn more about emerging treatments for metastatic melanoma. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jennifer Choi. Dr. Choi is Professor of Dermatology, Chief Division of Oncodermatology and Medical, Onco and Medical Dermatology, Northwestern University, Feinberg School of Medicine, Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center. Dr. Choi will be addressing an overview of metastatic melanoma, including diagnosing and staging, new and emerging treatment approaches, and tips for caring for your skin during cancer treatments. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Choi. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Um, so I'm going to start off just by going over how melanoma is diagnosed and what it means to have metastatic melanoma. So essentially, when you have a suspicious lesion on your skin, a biopsy is performed, and usually this is done by a dermatologist or another physician, and then it goes to the lab in what we call a pathology lab, or it's read by a dermatopathologist. And one of the most important things they look at in the diagnosis of melanoma is what they call Breslow thickness or Breslow depth. And this is used to measure in millimeters how far the melanoma has gone into the deeper layers of the skin. And it's a good predictor of how far melanoma has advanced, and it's used also to determine treatment. When they look at the Breslow depth, they measure in millimeters, and if it's 0.8 millimeters with alteration or 0.8 to 1 millimeter with or without alteration, that is usually when they consider doing what they call a sentinel lymph node biopsy. So what that means is that the treatment of a melanoma is a wide local excision by a surgeon. If a sentinel lymph node uh, biopsy is done, then at the time of excision, a dye is, is injected at the site of the melanoma, and they track where the dye travels in terms of the nearest lymph node. It, depending on which lymph node then lights up, they take those lymph nodes out surgically, and then they send it to the lab, and they, and they look at it, and they actually see if melanoma is involved in the lymph nodes. If there is involvement of melanoma of the lymph nodes, that's when it then becomes stage three. Um, stage three is when the melanoma has spread to nearby lymph nodes or lymph vessels. 
And then usually at the time um, of the surgery, they will determine if they will take out the rest of the lymph nodes or if they'll leave it in there, and then they'll take out the melanoma. Usually at stage three, after the surgery is done, then you are um, linked in with a medical oncologist, and then usually imaging is then uh, ordered. So that's when they will do a PET-CT scan of your whole body, including the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, and sometimes they will order an MRI of the brain. And these is, this imaging is used to assess if there are any signs of other internal organ involvement. If this imaging shows that there are suspicious spots, then usually a biopsy is done of those spots. Um, and then if it is confirmed that melanoma is in another organ, that's when they call it stage four or metastatic melanoma. And this is when cancer has moved from the primary tumor to distant areas of the body, such as the lungs, liver, brain, bones, and gastrointestinal tract. Um, in terms of new and emerging treatment approaches, since I'm a dermatologist and my colleagues on this conference are medical oncologists, I'm going to leave mostly the discussion and information of systemic treatment to them. But in terms of new and emerging treatment options, there are a couple skin-directed newer therapies that are being used in certain settings. One of that includes something that we call TVEC, T-V-E-C. The formal name is telimogene lehiparavec. So T-A-L-I-M-O-G-E-N-E. The next word is L-A-H-E-R-P-A-R-E-P-V-E-C. It's a mouthful. But what this is is basically a weakened herpes simplex virus that is made in a lab, and it can be injected directly into melanoma lesions and or even lymph nodes that are involved with melanoma. And it's like a localized immunotherapy that triggers your body to find and attack these cancer cells. Um, so we have used it in both stage three and in stage four disease. And additionally, there's another treatment that we call topical amiquimod, I-M-I-Q-U-I-M-O-D. And this is a cream that actually can be used also to induce a localized immunotherapy effect. And there have been patients that we have successfully used the top, topical amiquimod even with the TVEC injections to treat stage three disease. In terms of tips for caring for your skin during cancer treatment, with both stage three and four melanoma, you're going to learn that immunotherapy is the first line of treatment. Um, and so one of the most common side effects from immunotherapy are skin changes. And so a lot of patients can develop rash, and there are many different types of rashes. And dermatologists like myself, what we call oncodermatologists, we are experts in knowing what kind of rash is developing, and then we can also help to treat it. So basically, based on clinical appearance and possible biopsy of the rash, there are types that can look like eczema, what we call eczematous dermatitis. There's another type that's called lichenoid. And rarely, there are autoimmune blistering conditions, like something called bullous pemphigoid, which can present with blisters or sometimes just months and months of extreme itching. And then some people can also develop new-onset skin conditions like psoriasis, or their pre-existing psoriasis or eczema can suddenly worsen while they're on immunotherapy. And another very common side effect includes itching, which can happen even in the absence of rash. So this can be one of the most common side effects from immunotherapy um, and can interfere with sleeping and even activities of daily living. And then another common side effect, especially in melanoma patients on immunotherapy, includes vitiligo, where they can lose pigment in their skin. So a couple of basic tips in terms of how to care for your skin. So number one, switch to all gentle skincare products because your skin in general is going to become much more sensitive during treatment. So you want to choose hydrating and fragrance-free or dye-free products. 
um, in, in terms of what you're using to wash in the shower or bath. And then in addition, it's also really important to choose a detergent that you're washing your clothes and sheets. Also make sure it's dye-free and fragrance-free and put aside those scented dryer sheets. Just don't use them for now. Make sure you're also hydrating your skin every day. So dry skin in general can make your skin much more sensitive to rashes and itching. So choose a, choose a moisturizer that has no scent um, and then one that's very hydrating. And you want to look for ingredients like ceramides and hyaluronic acid when you look at the ingredients um, of that moisturizer. Additionally, if you are itchy, there are very... Um, there are several moisturizers out there that contain anti-itch ingredients. If you want to look for ingredients like menthol or something called Promoxine, P-R-A-M-O-X-I-N-E. And it's also okay to use um, over-the-counter antihistamines because um, that can be very helpful as well for itching. Um, and then if you do develop a rash, you can start with an over-the-counter hydrocortisone 1% cream, which is a very common generic um, topical steroid. But frequently, these are not strong enough. So if you do develop a severe rash or even severe itching, tell your oncologist right away, and they can consult with a dermatologist to help out, because we end up frequently having to use very high-strength prescription topical steroids, and in some cases, oral steroids may be needed. And we're also experienced in using steroid-sparing agents that can be safer for long-term use in the setting of immunotherapy, and that includes things like phototherapy or even other biologic medications that can be treated um, in severe cases. And then lastly, it is really important during treatment to continue using sunscreen. So you want to choose a sunscreen that is at least SPF 30 to 50 any ingredient, whether it's physical blockers or chemical filters, are considered safe to use. You want to reapply every two hours, especially if you are going to be outside in the sun, you know, for a while. Um, and make sure you're using at least a full shot glass full for every application if you're wearing shirt, a T-shirt and shorts. So a lot of people underapply. And additionally, you want to... Um, especially if you're um, outside for a while, just make sure you're reapplying and, and using enough. And then don't forget wide-brimmed hats and sunglasses. And even during treatment, your skin is going to be more susceptible to, you know, say, example, sunburns and, and just irritation. So these are all important tips um, in terms of skin care during treatment. That's all I have for now, Dr. Mesner. Oh, that was really excellent, Dr. Choi. That was an outstanding presentation. And you've really set the stage for today's program, and I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Gregory Daniels, and Dr. Daniels is Professor of Medicine, UC San Diego Morris Cancer Center. And Dr. Daniels will be addressing targeted therapy, the roles of precision medicine, immunotherapy, and cancer vaccines, and clinical trial updates, how research increases your treatment options. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Daniels. Thanks, Carolyn, and Cancer Care, as well as the Melanoma Research Foundation today. Um, and I'm going to give a, just a quick overview of some current treatments. Then I'm going to comment on COVID, and that's going to lead into the new therapies that um, were just alluded to. So as outlined, um, melanoma can spread. And advanced stage or stage four, when melanoma spreads through the bloodstream and lands in other areas, oftentimes that's um, going to be treated with systemic therapies because it's a systemic problem. 
We're now moving these systemic treatments as they become more effective earlier in the management of disease. And so even in patients that uh, heretofore had gone first to surgery, we're even considering systemic uh, treatment options uh, to try to, one, decrease the, the impact of, of cancer, not just um, on the treatments that are given. You know, we were just talking about doing a sentinel lymph node biopsy, for example, and surgeries. Um, some of these surgeries can be pretty pretty big, um, pretty eventful to go through. And so we're trying to use um, treatments ahead of time to see if we can improve the outcomes both um, long-term for melanoma but also short-term in terms of treatment mor morbidity. Um, but in general, the treatments in melanoma divide into uh, two classes, uh, targeted therapies, which refer to um, typically oral medications that um, inhibit a specific pathway in the cancer cell. And in melanoma, the common pathway is called phospho-ERK. Um, most people have heard, if they've talked about melanoma at all, about BRAF, B-R-A-F. And that's commonly mutated in melanomas and activates this phospho-ERK pathway. However, there are other ways of turning on this pathway. And some of them in clinical trials that we're doing now are also targeted like the BRAF uh, mutations. So those are typically referred to as targeted therapies. And then there's immune therapies. And there have been several uh, ups and downs in the immune therapy field, but currently the vast majority of immune therapies are what are called checkpoint inhibitors, which allow uh, your body to overcome some stop signs that the cancer puts in its way, uh, so it turns off those stop signs and allows your immune system to infiltrate in the tumor and cause it to regress. And so we know some of those names, nivolumab, pembrolizumab, these are anti-PD-1 uh, uh, inhibitors. Um, there are also other uh, target molecules, LAG3 is a new one, and uh, CTLA-4 is an old one. And all these have been used either alone or in combination um, to battle uh, melanoma in advanced disease and, as I mentioned, now coming into earlier times. That's just a general overview of, of the two types of tools we use. But I want to pause and just talk about COVID, especially today when the World Health Organization declared that it's the end of the COVID emergency. And I can just say thank God um, because COVID really impacted um, you know, the world, of course, as well as um, cancer care and cancer research. And many studies were put on hold. Um, things were delayed. Um, it caused a great amount of stress within the healthcare system, as, as we all experienced. Um, we lost um, staff um, just um, in general, as well as really particularly in the clinical trial world. And we had to make some substantial adjustments. Um, uh, some of these were working out new processes um, of trying to deal with scarce resources. For example, if the clinical trial uh, needed uh, patients to be admitted to the hospital, uh, we couldn't do that anymore. Um, hospital wasn't available. Uh, patients often have lots of visits in a clinical trial, so we had to figure out how to do telemedicine consents and um, as many procedures transferred over to the virtual world as we possibly could. So it was a big stress, um, but 
on the flip side, it gave us a lot of new tools uh, coming out of COVID um, that we can use in clinical trial research. Um, and that's where I'll, where I'll start. Um, some people might have seen some announcements about a personalized vaccine uh, being studied. And so this is currently in clinical trials. And both a personalized vaccine, uh, what that refers to is um, not like a flu vaccine where everybody gets the same thing, but this is a vaccine that's uh, tailored very specific to that patient. And how this technology works is uh, you take the tumor cells that the patient um, has, you figure out what makes um, those cells unique. Um, in a sense, you sequence um, the, not the entire genome, but um, most of it. Uh, the coding sections, they're called, and you figure out um, which mutations are there. And the reason we do that is to try to find those unique targets that we can enhance with an immune response. And this ability to sequence and then generate vaccines uh, really was at the heart of developing the vaccines uh, in the COVID pandemic. And the same technology is being now turned around and used in melanoma, as well as in other cancers, to try to create these personalized vaccines, which you know, five years ago uh, would have been very difficult to imagine. And now we can turn around and anticipate that we can have, from a patient walking in the door, a personalized vaccine within three to four weeks uh, that's available to be tested in a, in a patient. And so there are um, ongoing clinical trials, both in the prevention of melanoma coming back, so that would be called adjuvant um, in high-risk patients, or uh, what are called therapeutic vaccines, um, those patients that have uh, melanoma spread in their body, and these vaccines can be given maybe in conjunction with some of the other immune therapies to enhance um, the immune response. So pretty exciting time came out of uh, really some of the things we learned from the COVID pandemic, and now we can apply those things uh, across to melanoma. Um, these vaccines, though, do um, they do have some limitations, and one of them is um, the identification of these targets or neoantigens um, occurred through basically computer programs and algorithms and, and best guesses. Another way we can get to what are those unique targets is something that um, is called adoptive cell therapy, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, or TILs. And this is a technology, and uh, Dr. Wong, the next speaker, is, is an expert in this at, at his institution. Um, but uh, TILs uh, are a patient's own immune cells that infiltrate into the tumor. And they infiltrate into that tumor because they recognize the tumor. So the biology has already picked out what the neoantigens could be. Um, so we're taking advantage of that. And then we take those cells out, enhance them outside the body, and then give them back. Currently, this technology is also in clinical trials, uh, but we anticipate uh, that this should be moving into the commercial world in the next uh, 6 to 18 months. So we're all waiting for that. And this, this therapy would not be for everybody. This would be um, in the advanced uh, disease setting, and it would be for selective patients because currently this technology is, is fairly complex 
and involves hospitalizations and treatments um, that are, are, are at times pretty tough on the patients. That said, it's another way that we can um, uh, get at a group of patients that uh, have been resistant to our current therapies. So those are two examples of um, some technologies that are um, coming online. Um, I'm really happy that uh, COVID looks like it's probably going to be with us for a long time, unfortunately, but at least the emergency part of it's uh, um, moving, moving on. And with that, I'll, I'll pause my presentation and look forward to questions later. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. That was outstanding and so much information for people, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Michael Wong. And Dr. Wong is Professor of Medical Oncology, Melanoma and Cutaneous Malignancies, Executive Director, Integration and Program Development, Cancer Network, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Wong is going to address follow-up care, controlling treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, and communicating with the healthcare team, including your prepared list of questions. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wong. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. It's uh, indeed a privilege and an honor to participate in this program, and, and I uh, appreciate the fantastic information Dr. Choi and Daniels uh, provided already as an introduction to what I have to say. Um, and the important thing to talk about side effects is if you uh, uh, can, you know, the gist of Dr. Daniels and Dr. Choi's uh, presentation is that this is indeed an auspicious time to speak about melanoma therapies. I remember a time when we only had a small number of drugs that were available, and, and one of the things that you should be getting a sense of is the tremendous explosion of new drugs, new strategies, vaccine, targeted therapies, immunotherapy, uh, 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 cellular therapy, uh, and now sort of a new era of sort of these preventive vaccine therapies. What a fantastic time, and I want to just leave folks with a sense of hope and optimism uh, uh, because we now have the routine expectation of response to therapy and, and cures from even advanced melanoma. So start with that. Side effects of these therapies, of course, will vary with uh, the kind of therapies you're getting. They all differ a little bit. And so um, I think I'm going to wrap this sort of discussion of side effects with um, uh, also a discussion of how to uh, communicate with the healthcare team and also to understand that, uh, that we are now in an era of, of uh, uh, remote medicine, uh, video um, uh, visits, and so on and so forth. So it demands a certain type of uh, sort of a new approach. Um, one of the things we've lost from not having patients sit in front of us is sort of the meta message. You can always understand if the th in some way whether a conversation is going well or not well. When you don't have the person in front of you, you don't see them, for, for instance, this is a telephone visit, um, it's very important to, to sort of uh, be able to, to break into the conversation. Doctors and healthcare givers are notoriously famous for prattling on forever and ever and, and uh, not giving any room for the patient to, to, to speak up. So one of the things I do when I don't see the patient is I just give them permission up front. I say, listen, I can't see your face. I'm not offended, just break into the conversation. Just say something, interrupt me. Uh, people are very hesitant to do that because they, they're sort of respectful of our time, thank you. And, 
respectful of us, but I think it's it's one of the things you have to almost steal yourself to the the possibility of doing. Number two is that the that the visits are most useful if you actually have sort of uh, uh, organize your thoughts, right? And I always tell patients, you know, always always sort of organize the most important thing and write it down if you have to um, and make sure we address that. I think doctors sometimes don't always know what's important to you. We, we have a famous, in fact, I saw a physician in my office as a as a patient and, you know, I literally had my hand on the door uh, uh, on the door jam, ready to leave, and he goes, and by the way, <laughs> here's my important question. He sort of laughed and said, don't you hate when patients do that? You know, so my important thing is always know what's important. I, I, With immunotherapy, one of the things that's very important to realize is that the side effects can be different for every individual. Our immune system is uniquely individual to us, and it's a function of what we are, where we've been, and all the things we've gone through. And so not surprisingly, the side effects of stimulating that person's immune system can vary from person to person. And so, uh, and so it's important to, speak, to have a situation where you can uh, have the faith and confidence to bring to your doctor uh, uh, symptoms that are important to you. And because the symptoms can be very subtle, an example is, for instance, uh, I feel tired, I'm fatigued. And um, there are easily half a dozen reasons for that in immunotherapy. So something very important to, to, to make sure you, you betray to the doctor uh, the symptoms you're having. We love information. Uh, here's an example where that's important. Uh, we track uh, things like uh, how many stools you're having if you're on immunotherapy because that may be, may be um, uh, a harbinger of, of a thing called colitis, which is inflammation of colon. So we'd like to know how many times and write it down. Is it loose? Is it not loose? And I'm sorry if it's lunchtime and you're listening to this, but it's very important to us. Uh, I have patients take photographs of uh, what happens when we go to the bathroom. Also important. So these are things in the modern era which are important to us. I am very cognizant of the fact that Modern technology could be difficult for folks that were not raised in this. So my mother's 89, and, and the other day she was trying to show me a, 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 a skin lesion. You know, here I am, a skin cancer doctor and an expert in these things. And, you know, I almost lost patience with my mother because she was trying to point the camera. I'm laughing a bit. Point uh, the camera at her rash, and this was easily a 10-minute exercise and, you know, more to the right, more to the left kind of thing. My point is... Uh, uh, is to work with a healthcare provider, with the nurses, with their team, to make sure your technology that you have is something which is uh, 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 that you understand and you can use. We, uh, in our practice, we have someone reach out to the patient the day before the visit just to make sure that they that their technology, the app that they're using, and so on and so forth, is one that is uh, you know up to the current uh, sort of version and one which they know how to use and. And it's very important in the technology age that that you you use the resources ahead of you. Communication with the healthcare staff is the key to managing side effects. Uh, and so, uh, one of the things that for all my new patients, for example, in my practice, they get a card. I always make sure they show it to me uh, when I go and see them as a new patient, and point to them uh, the direct phone number and the after-hours number, and how to get hold of my practice. And why is that important? Because 
uh, I sometimes lament to the junior doctors that I'm teaching. I said, well, oh my, I, I really kind of miss the old chemotherapy days. And the reason for that is because with at least that strategy, you could almost time out when things are going to happen. Here with the immunotherapy, not so much. Again, very individualized. So the timing, the quality, the quantity, where it happens, how it happens, is very different for everyone. And there's no guarantee it happens between the hours of 9 and 5, Monday to Friday, for sure. So very important. And, and, and you as a patient uh, should, should know how uh, to get hold of a doctor, who to get hold of, and what technology you need to do to get, if it's a phone or a message or whatever. Very, very important. That is the foundation of, uh, of uh, sort of handling uh, side effects in patients. Um, uh, and again, uh, uh, I will end by saying that uh, this is a, a, a time in melanoma of great opportunity of, of a routine expectation of response and a, a truly realistic uh, goal of cure even with advanced disease. And at that, I, I will turn over the, uh, uh, the podium to uh, Ms. Lapura. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wong. That was just an outstanding presentation and and very inspirational for everybody to hear this. I think that's really important for people to know um, what you said, and I know they'll be asking you more about this during the Q&A as well, so thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. LaPierre, and Ms. LaPierre is the Chief Operating Executive Officer of the Melanoma Research Foundation. And Ms. LaPierre will be addressing Melanoma Research Foundation's free programs and services and provide you information of how to contact them. And it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Ms. LaPieria. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you to Cancer Care for your support and partnership with the Melanoma Research Foundation. It is very exciting to talk to you all during Melanoma Awareness Month. and. We heard about some great progress and a lot of things that are in the pipeline for melanoma patients, which, again, I just echo Dr. Wong's comments that this brings so much hope to patients and their loved ones, and it's really an exciting time in research um, that there are options now when there weren't many, many years ago. So very promising and exciting, and I just want to spend 30 seconds telling everyone about who the Melanoma Research Foundation is. Um, we are an advocacy organization. We are based in Washington, D.C., but we are national. And we were founded over 26 years ago by a patient. Our mission is to support research, and we have funded over $23 million in research to date. We educate patients and caregivers and the general community about melanoma and we advocate on the state and federal level on issues that impact the melanoma community. So right now I'm really gonna focus on the education piece because that's what today is about. And I know that many of you listening today are probably feeling overwhelmed. You have a lot of information, you probably have a lot of questions. And one of the things Dr. Wong said was, was really important, which was, the questions you bring to your doctor. So I just wanted to spend a minute highlighting some of the wonderful resources that are available through the MRF 
by visiting our website, melanoma.org. And again, it's a great website with a lot of resources for patients and caregivers. And a lot of times it's the caregivers who are going and getting the resources for their loved one. So first, I want to highlight our education materials. These are all free. You can download them or you can request that they be sent to you. This is all free of charge, again, by visiting our website, melanoma.org. We also have a program called Ask a Nurse. And this is an oncology RN who is on staff and available to answer questions via email um, seven days a week. Her email is askanurse at melanoma.org, and she will help you answer questions you might have. Again, alluding to Dr. Wong, maybe on a weekend, maybe you can't get in touch with your provider and you have a question. That is a free resource and available to anyone. We also have a clinical trial finder, and, and this goes back to the clinical trials that were mentioned earlier. Um, we have a clinical trial finder on our website with a navigator who will help you find a clinical trial that's right for you. So many times people hear about going to clinicaltrials.gov, but I will tell you that is a very complex website. It's very hard for patients to navigate, and the resource that we have on our website is very user-friendly and links up with a real person for you to ask questions. We also have another resource that I wanted to mention, which is our patient forum. And again, you can log in and create a profile for yourself and ask a question or read some of the other questions that patients and caregivers have asked. And there really is a um, sense of confidence that comes from that peer-to-peer -peer dialogue and asking another patient who might have taken that drug, participated in a clinical trial, and again, it's an, another easy way to interface with patients going through the exact same thing that you're going to, going through. And the other resource that I wanted to highlight was our treatment center finder. Again, when patients are diagnosed, you might not have a big treatment center close to you like the doctors who are on this call. MD Anderson might not be in your backyard. Northwestern might not be in your backyard. And you don't know where to go. Um, the Treatment Center Finder is an excellent resource for you to find, um, you know, the right place for you to go that's close and convenient. So, again, another resource that I would just draw your attention to. We also host webinars and in-person and hybrid patient symposiums. So, again, I would encourage people to go to our website, melanoma.org see if there is a patient symposium happening near you. These are generally held at major academic centers where we bring together experts like we're doing today to speak on some of these issues and emerging treatment options, and also the psychosocial support that's available, because that is a very important aspect of going through treatment, is what are the resources that are available for you to help you navigate some of the stress and anxiety and some of the side effects that are happening mm -hmm. in your body. So with, with that, I will, um, I will wrap it up. But again, I would just like to encourage people to go to our website, melanoma.org, or any of our social media channels where we share a lot of great information for patients and caregivers, and we are always here to support you.
Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Miss um, Lapira. That was wonderful, and what a wonderful resource. Some of you may know of this resource, but if you don't, please take advantage of it. And actually, at the end of today's program, well, actually, in a couple of days, you'll be getting a Survey Monkey, an evaluation of the program. But in the Survey Monkey, we will also include all the um, websites or resources, and of course, we'll include the Melanoma Research Foundation as a major resource for all of you on the call today. Just to it's numbers of programs are just phenomenal. So um, thank you. And I know the questions to you also, Ms. LaPierre, during the Q&A. And um, I'm just going to say a few words. I'm Carolyn Nestor. I'm Senior Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care. Um, cancer Care is a national organization. It's been around now for 79 years. It offers free programs and services to people nationally throughout the United States. Um, and Often people call our Hope Line, 800-813-4673, and they're connected to an oncology social worker. So when you call that number, you're immediately connected to an oncology social worker. There is no wait time because they're all in queue expecting the calls. Each one takes turns. We have about 35 oncology social workers, and they take turns answering the phone and, and uh, taking your questions. Um, so usually people start with their question, and then the oncology social worker then goes over with them um, all the different services we offer. So what are those services? Well, for one thing, of course, they immediately get support in calling us. And usually a person has a particular question that they'll ask. And then um, a review of all our services. So we do offer practical, financial, and co-payment assistance, which is enormously helpful to most people at this time, or actually throughout Cancer history, this has been a very important um, feature of programs that we offer. We also offer support. Um, and we also, uh, also offer online support groups. We offer um, resource navigation, which means that, for example, if you're in a community, let's say you, you're having trouble with food insecurity and you really don't know where to get food, it's really a big problem for you. Um, our resource navigation team will work with you and they will take you virtually and figure out where you can get the help with food, whether it be in your community, whether it be your region or nationally. And that's just one example, but there are many different types of needs that people present us to us with. We also offer these workshops, about 80 of them a year, and we do um, have a number of publications. And you can see all of this on our website, www.cancercare.org, with many other services that we do offer. And now it is time for us to have questions. I'm going to ask Regina, to explain to all of you how to cure for questions, I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Regina? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Excellent. And um, start with one of our questions now for Dr. Choi. Should I have a sentinel node biopsy to find out if my melanoma has spread to the lymph nodes? What are some potential signs that it has spread to lymph nodes? Um, so, oh, okay, so there are a couple of scenarios. One is if there's actual clinical sign of lymph node involvement, what that would look or feel like is that you may actually feel a lump or a nodule. Um, it could be where the lymph nodes reside. So, in other words, if you feel, a, like, if you actually feel a lump or nodule in your neck area, behind your ears, around your clavicles, in your armpit, or in the groin area, 
then that would be a potential sign that there already is lymph node involvement. And in those cases, certainly a lymph node biopsy would be done. Um, the other, if there is no actual sign that there could be involvement, you don't feel any nodules or lumps in those areas, then they usually will consider doing a sentinel lymph node biopsy based on how deep the initial melanoma is in terms of measurement um, on, in underneath the, under, like on the microscope. So they will measure how deep that melanoma is based on millimeters. And then usually if it's over 0.8 millimeters on average, or if it's less than that, but there's signs of what they call ulceration, then they will consider um, talking about doing a sentinel lymph node biopsy. If your melanoma is diagnosed and let's say it's only, you know, 0.2 millimeters, then in those cases, they will, they usually feel like you do not need a sentinel lymph node biopsy. So 0.8 millimeters and above, they'll talk about it, or 0.8 less than that, and there's ulceration, or if there are clinical signs of nodules or lumps. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, and for, uh, for Dr. Daniels, if my melanoma has a BRAF genetic mutation or other known mutations, are there targeted therapy or immunotherapy treatment options? Yeah. Um, so it, um, the, the short answer is yes. Um, so uh, the common BRAF mutation um, happens in this um, 600 position. So BRAF V600, um, and it's often um, changing that V amino acid to an E amino acid. And if, if that's the case, then these uh, melanomas respond very well to the, and there are three different um, commercial BRAF inhibitors on the market. Um, then it gets a lot more complicated. Um, uh, for example, well, there are other types of BRAF inhibitors. Um, so we classify them into different types, and they have different responses um, and expectations to uh, our medications. Um, if I have a BRAF inhibitor that responds to the drug, is it actually the right thing to do at that moment? Uh, for example, um, recently a clinical trial came out that suggested, actually more than suggested, I think um, um, really solidified in 99% of the medical oncologists out there that even if a patient has a BRAF mutation, uh, if um, it's appropriate. Um, immune therapies should be given uh, preferentially um, to targeted therapies. And so where it fits into your treatment um, kind of depends on where you are, what, what clinical things are going on, what exact type of mutation you have. And I would say just like the sentinel lymph node uh, biopsy, uh, these, are, these are all really uh, fertile areas to discuss with your um, care team as to and how these tools apply to you. Excellent, thank you. Um, and uh, for Dr. Wong, can nivolumab and ipilimumab cross into the brain barrier of the brain or the central nervous system? If yes, are there different side effects from a result of this? Yeah, again, a good question. So. Uh, for the longest time, we thought that immunotherapy uh, would uh, be relatively ineffective for, uh, in the brain, uh, but more recent work has shown that that may not be true. And, in fact, uh, 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 we are now come to understand that immunotherapy, especially eflipumab and nivolumab, 
uh, can be effective in uh, metastases to the brain. Now, I, I think Dr. Daniels uh, sort of alluded to this. The, the details are important and the subtleties are important. There are multiple ways to address metastatic brain disease, and here what we do at MD Anderson and in many other places is to bring a multidisciplinary approach where you have the radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, the surgeons, the physicists, to, to bring them together to determine what is uh, the, the necessary thing and the best thing to do for that particular individual patient. So the short answer, again, is yes, it's effective, but the real answer is, Yes, it's effective uh, uh, if used in the correct context and in the right way in the right individual. Um, so, again, a, uh, the, the takeaway point is multidisciplinary approach to a complex problem uh, is important. And, again, uh, 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 you know, the idea that immunotherapy may not uh, be effective in metastatic brain disease has been put to rest. And, uh, and because of that, we now have multiple options to deal with it, but the details are very important here. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Wang. Um, and um, another question for Dr. Choi. Regarding the tips for skin care during treatment, do these also aid in prevention? Should my family be practicing these skin care methods as well? That's a great question. So, yes, 100%. So we know that um, a lot a very high risk factor for developing melanoma, so for, for those loved family members who may be at risk. Um, given your history, uh, basically sun protection is one of the most important parts to try to help prevent melanoma, so sun protection is really, really key. So using that sunscreen that we talked about, you know, using it enough, using it frequently enough, um, and we talk about you know, UVB and UVA rays, both of which can cause skin cancer, um, UVA rays are emitted equal length throughout the entire year, and UVB rays are most intense in the summer, um, but both of them can cause skin cancer. So, meaning we should be wearing sunscreen every day year-round. Um, and so, yes, it 100% does pertain to anyone who wants to, you know, lower their risk of developing melanoma. And another question for you, just it's related, um, is um, I said clothing that one can purchase as well that provides um, this type of protection as well. Yes. So now they have now many companies that um, actually um, create what we call SPS clothing or UPS clothing, so universal protection factor or sun protection factor, um, and what it is is basically these is either you know shirts, t-shirts, jackets swimwear, they actually have an SPF protection in them. So as long as you're wearing it, you are you are you are protected from the sun, and that actually can be very convenient so that you don't have to reapply every time, and particularly when you're swimming or in the ocean, um, basically, you know, it'll help prevent that sunscreen from coming off very easily. So SPF clothing is a really wonderful way to um, get that protection, um, and they're usually lightweight and not too hot. Excellent. Thank you. And um, question for Dr. Um, Daniels. Um, my aunt was diagnosed with melanoma, and is there a genetic predisposition for this? Should I get tested? Um, yeah. Um, great question. So melanoma, like a lot of other, other cancers, um, there are familial 
um, syndromes that are associated with um, higher risk. And so um, when all of us um, from dermatology, primary care, and medical oncology, when we all meet a, a patient, we always um, talk about, you know, are there other uh, melanomas in the family? Um, but that that's the first question. The second question is, and are there other cancers in the family, and what age did they happen at? And um, kind of drill down in there. And with that, you know, we know that uh, melanoma um, is is common. Uh, so I will say that the majority of melanomas are not linked to a familial identifiable gene. Um, however, uh, we can see linkage, for example, between uh, melanoma and breast cancer, um, melanoma and colorectal cancers, melanoma and pancreatic cancers. So there are these um, clues that get at, is there a familial gene? Um, and so um, if if you find that, then uh, we look for it in the affected person uh, with uh, the tumor type, and then we can use that information back to the family. That said, as I, as I mentioned, most melanomas are not linked to a specific gene, but when a family member gets melanoma, their first-degree relatives, so that would be children or brothers and sisters or parents, um, all of a sudden, uh, on paper at least, um, have a higher risk of getting melanoma. So if you have a, um, a first-degree relative with melanoma, having skin awareness, um, sun awareness, this was just meant to, mentioned, is really important. And maybe dermatology, um, um, it just depends on what's going on in the family. Thank you. And the question um, for Dr. Wong, what does it mean to have ulcerated melanoma? So uh, in, in an ulcerated melanoma, it's a histologic feature uh, seen under the microscope. Um, it is a feature uh, that is important because um, it's associated with uh, uh, sort of a uh, – it up, upstages the cancer. It's associated with a more aggressive behavior of the melanoma. Uh, it is uh, a, a feature that is assessed under the microscope. So it's not something you can easily see. Some people think, oh, well, it's bleeding. It must be ulcerated. But that's not necessarily true. And because of its importance – uh, the definition of that is 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 uh, strictly defined um, um, under the microscope. Um, ulceration is also um, a feature that is part of the staging system, and uh, and therefore it comes to the forefront as one of the things we look at. So it, there is uh, n nothing you as a patient can do about. Uh, Ulceration, it is a biologic feature of the disease. Um, and uh, the takeaway point is that it is something that is usually uh, described histologically under the microscope for the purposes of staging uh, the, um, um, the melanoma appropriately. Uh, melanoma, more so than any other cancer, is staged under the microscope. And Dr. Choi alluded to it, right? They talk about Breslow depth, depth of invasion ulceration, um, uh, lymphovascular invasion, all those things that you see that are important to stage the melanoma, many of those, if not all, are under the microscope. Excellent. Thank you so much. And now, and uh, we're going to ask all of our speakers before we conclude the program 
to give everyone a takeaway um, from your perspective. So I'll start with Dr. Choi, then Dr. Daniels, Dr. Wong, and then Ms. LaPierre. So starting with uh, Dr. Choi. Um, I would say my takeaway is um, basically, you know, staging a melanoma is based on how, um, how deep it is or how not deep it is at the time of diagnosis. So, um, you know, the Breslow depth is most important and that will help to determine eventual staging and then if CT scan or if, if further imaging is needed. Um, and then, you know, the takeaway is that with advanced melanoma and if you do have to undergo treatment for it, particularly with immunotherapy, given the different side effects that you heard can occur, just know that there are people there to support you for every one of those side effects, um, including the skin, which is one of the most common, and that, you know, if, if side effects occur, it's not something that you just have to suffer through, that there are many treatments for it and that we can um, help support you. And the most important thing is that we are trying to help you stay on the immunotherapy or stay on whatever treatment that you're going to be on in order to provide the best outcome. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Dr. Daniels. Yeah, from a patient's point of view, I think I'd encourage um, patients to really ask what are the options um, because, um, as Dr. Wong was saying, you know, over these last decade, we've, we've really come in uh, with a wealth of um, tools. But they're not perfect tools, and um, they all have their pluses and minuses and roles. Each of our physicians will have their bias on how to apply them. But I think really getting into a good discussion about each of these um, options at any particular stage and um, getting some feedback as to, okay, if I do that, um, what's, what's option two, what's option three, including uh, what the role of clinical trials is and whether you know, the site that you're getting treated at, they don't necessarily need to have clinical trials themselves, but at least maybe have a relationship with an institution that has uh, trials available and, uh, and see if that's a, that's a fit because that's, that should be included in, in any options discussion with the patient. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Dr. Wong. All right. Just remind folks, hope, opportunity, and, and cure is part of the melanoma dialogue. So lots of opportunity here. And you heard Dr. Daniels uh, speak about uh, uh, possibilities. And for side effects, uh, you know, who to call how to get hold of them, and the what, which is to, you know, what is the symptom. So be proactive, write down the issues you're having, make sure you break into the conversations, especially if it's telemedicine, we can't see your face, be proactive. Uh, and, uh, and remember, hope, opportunity, and cure. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much. That's a wonderful way to kind of be able to think about this call today. And um, Ms. LaPierre. Yeah, thank you. And, and sort of piggybacking off of Dr. Wong, you know, I, I would just encourage everyone that the best advocate is you. And there are many, many resources out there. I think we have a tendency to go to Dr. Google and we scare ourselves. And again, I would just encourage people to go to trusted resources. You know, go to your, um, to the website of the treatment center, come to an advocacy group like the Melanoma Research Foundation. There are many um, people on the line who are international, and there are international melanoma organizations all over the world. We actually 
partner with them, and you can find the local advocacy group in your country by visiting our website. And we have something called the Global Melanoma Coalition. So if you don't know who's available in your country, come to our website and you can find them. And again, just keep asking questions, keep getting more resources, and um, always, keep, always keep pushing forward and advocating for yourself or your loved one. Oh, thank you so much. That's, that's wonderful. And it's good, wonderful to hear for our global participants to know this. Um, and so I just really want to thank our speakers, and I also want to thank our participants. Um, our, our participants asked really great questions today, although we've done this program before. The questions were really phenomenal today. And also, our speakers were phenomenal in terms of addressing the questions. So I just want to thank everybody. And I do, in wrapping this up, just want to say a few words about the question, the Q&A. Now, some of you did get to ask a question. Some of you have a question yet to ask. And some of you are thinking of a question. And I would ask all of you to go back to your treating healthcare team because they do know you the best. They have you their rec your records in front of them. And they will be able to address your questions. And, and our, our goal is that in the program today, you've learned some things or you've fortified yourself in asking the questions. And please ask your questions as often as you need to until you get the answers that you really need or you may seek a second opinion if you need to, but be sure that you, you know, ask your question of the people who are actually currently treating you. We also definitely, as a resource, the Melanoma Research Foundation is a go-to place. Um, and again, that's just is a go-to place for both our participants in the U.S. and globally as well, because they'll be able to link you um, to different resources, and they do have a tremendous number of resources. Um, most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I don't want anyone to feel that you're alone. Although it is, of course, tempting, and often people do feel alone, I want you to know you're now connected to a really a whole community of support, your healthcare team, the Melanoma Research Foundation, other cancer organizations, Cancer Care, um, and we will be sending you again that survey monkey, and it will include all the resources and then some that we didn't even mention on today's program that you'll be made aware of. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.